Good afternoon. Uh, I'm John Walters, and I'm President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I want to welcome everybody here and welcome those who are joining us on the live stream. This session is entitled Regulatory and, Re and Reputational Risks in China, Forced Labor, and the U.S. Government's Contribution to a Global Response. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce our, our two speakers, but first I want to I wanted to say just my own uh, view of the importance of this issue. Um, actually, since I've met Nuri Turkle and read his book, and uh, since we Hudson does a fair amount of work on this area, both in terms of trade and, and in terms of uh, strategic policy, um, I will say that um, it, it is, this is a problem that um, is difficult for me personally not to think about each day. And I recognize that it's not only a problem in China, but it's a problem in other places. That is the, the use of, of oppression and forced labor. Uh, wherever it happens, it's bad, and it happens in some cases even in the United States. But on a mass scale to suppress and, and, and commit a kind of genocide is something that um, um, is bothersome not only as a country who stands for other principles, but I think as individuals who, who – um, are forced, I think, if they want to be what they say they are, not to look away, uh, not to tolerate, not to, not to just not enable and not buy products made by that kind of oppression, but also to do more. And uh, in our effort to try to talk about what we can do as both an individual, individual as a country, and as a country, we couldn't have a, a better speaker here today. And I want to thank him for joining us. Uh, Robert Silvers is, uh, is, was confirmed by the Senate is Undersecretary for Strategy and Policy and Plans on August 5th, 2021. He is responsible for driving policy and implementation plans all across the Department of Homeland Security and its missions, including counterterrorism, cybersecurity, infrastructure security and resilience, border security and immigration, international affairs, trade and economic security. Mr. Silvers previously served in the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama and Biden administrations as Assistant Secretary for Cyber, Cyber Policy. In that role, he oversaw private sector engagement, federal government incident response, and diplomatic outreach pertaining to cybersecurity and emerging technology. Mr. Silvers also previously served as DHS Deputy Chief of Staff, managing the execution of policy and operational priorities across the entire department. Prior to his appointment, he was a partner at the law firm Paul Hastings in town. Um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security was being formed when I was last in government in the galaxy far away long ago in the Bush administration. And so I have some knowledge of the far-flung responsibilities and difficulties of running a department that big, that many responsibilities. It's one of those things kind of Congress creates and then throws it into the executive branch lap and says, make it make sense. And by the way, if you make any mistakes, we'll be sure to second guess you along the way. Um, uh, I mentioned Nuri. Nuri Turkle uh, is a senior fellow at Hudson Institute specializing in national security, foreign policy, and issues of forced labor and supply chain risks. He's also an attorney specializing in international corporate compliance, uh, U.S. government enforcement relating to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and other anti-corruption and human rights standards. Uh, Nuri was born in a re-education camp at the height of China's Cultural Revolution. He spent the first several months of his life in detention with his mother. He came to the United States in 1995 as a student and was granted asylum in 1998. In May 2020, he was appointed 
by Congress to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Many of his recommendations have been incorporated into laws and pending legislation relating to China, including the Uyghur uh, Human Rights Policy Act of 2020. He's also the founder and chairman of the board of Uyghur Human Rights Project, and he served as president of the Uyghur American, uh, uh, excuse me, the Uyghur American Association. Uh, I, I want to thank both of them for their uh, attending this event and the important work that they're both doing. So without any further ado, Mary and Rob, thank you. Thank you very much, John. Um, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful <clears throat> not only for be, your being an exemplary leader, but all the support that you provided me, uh, my work uh, here at the Hudson Institute. Um, thank you. I wanted to thank you all for being here. Um, um, I am uh, delighted uh, to have this conversation, even though it's a very grim topic, uh, it's a very distressful topic, but this is something, as John uh, noted, uh, deserves a lot of attention. Uh, the United States uh, government um, have legal tools, including the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act that was signed into, signed into law in December 2021, and its landmark rebuttable presumption went into effect last summer. This law is arguably the most important legislative mandate that Congress put in place to address some of the lingering issues we have uh, with uh, Communist China uh, in our trade relationship uh, since China joined the WTO about two decades ago. This legislative mandate improves the existing U.S. regime banning imports made with forced labor. This is done in two critical ways. First, it establishes the assumption by statute that any goods, wares, articles, merchandise, mine produced or manufactured wholly or in part in Xinjiang are made with forced labor unless proven otherwise by clear and convincing evidence. The second, the law requires the interagency forced labor enforcement task force, which was established under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement, uh, USMCA is commonly known, to develop a strategy to prevent the imports of goods made with forced labor from the Xinjiang region. I'm so delighted that uh, Undersecretary uh, Rob Silvers uh, took the time to uh, uh, visit Hudson today. Thank you and welcome. Um, in addition to serving uh, a top policy official at the DHS, as John introduced, um, Undersecretary Silvers is tasked with this challenge, challenging responsibility to oversee, implement, and enforce this statutory policy as a chair of the interagency task force. Um, I wanted to uh, start with um, something just happened uh, a couple of days ago here in Washington. Uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, held an expo on tools for sim uh, supply chain transparency this week. And um, I'd like to uh, share a quote from Dr. Laura Murphy uh, from her presentation. Uh, as some of you know that uh, her work on supply chain, uh, supply chain tracing has been vital and informative to key actors responsible for crafting policy responses to modern-day slavery. In her remarks to the business leaders and others gathered at this event on Wednesday, she said, you're talking about your business risk, your legal risk. I'm talking about the risk of participating in genocide, of financing a genocide because that's what we're doing. She also said, until you're doing every single thing you can do to make sure you change what's happening for the Uyghur people, 
or at least make sure you're, doing, you're not profiting from them, then you should not sleep at night. That is a heavy indictment of business leaders, investors, and all of us as consumers. Um, I want to jump right into the question with some questions, uh, Mr. Undersecretary. Um, you feel free to uh, comment on uh, Dr. Murphy's work and her remarks. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, um, I want to begin asking uh, new export bans, investment ban, and specially designated national uh, SN, uh, SDNs filled with the Federal Register uh, on rolling basis, and if you can explain why this is happening. Yeah, first, first thank you to the Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you, Nori. Uh, uh, for those watching, you should know that uh, uh, Nori is a true uh, not only friend to me and the Department of Homeland Security, but an inspiration to, to all of us uh, for his, uh, his life story, his perseverance, his pursuit of justice, and his leadership as uh, chair of the uh, Commission on International Religious Freedom, as founder of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, Thank and you. so many other uh, capacities. So th it, it's an honor to be here with you, Nora. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. So <clears throat> I want to first pick up on something you, you, you said in your introduction about how this is a grim topic. Yeah. It is a grim topic, but uh, what that uh, makes me want to do is not turn away from it and avert our eyes, but instead shine a light on it that is brighter and brighter and brighter because we have to eradicate this right. grim problem of forced labor, of slave labor around the world yeah. because it is a problem around the world uh, and it is uh, a particularly acute problem in Xinjiang province yep. uh, in China, as you, as you know. And uh, we see in Xinjiang province very well-documented track record of uh, uh, forced labor conditions, uh, detention conditions, concentration camp-type conditions for ethnic Uyghurs. We see systemic schemes to remove Uyghurs and other persecuted minorities from mm -hmm. Xinjiang province to other parts of China to yeah. engage in forced labor uh, there. And uh, this is something that we cannot rest mm -hmm. until we have uh, eradicated. And uh, as chair of the Federal Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force, that is one of the things I, I think of every day when I come into the office of how can we progress further in learning about the scope of this problem, developing leads that we can investigate, and then bringing enforcement authorities to bear mm -hmm. to uh, clamp down on those kinds of goods uh, coming into this country. You mentioned uh, sanctions lists and entity lists. One element of the new Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that mm -hmm. you mentioned that passed a, uh, a little over um, uh, a year ago, uh, is that DHS, for the first time, uh, was charged to create a sanctions list of companies known to traffic and forced labor. Mm -hmm. uh, we did that when we implemented the law in June of last year. And uh, one of our highest priorities for 2023 is to add additional entities uh, to that list, because we are very aware, based on reporting, credible reporting from the NGO and other communities that uh, there's a, a, a significant number of companies that are operating in Xinjiang or around Xinjiang 
that are engaging in these abhorrent practices, and we want to name them, and we want to ensure that their goods uh, do not come uh, into this country. Into this country. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I wanted to um, um, uh, uh, ask you about the uh, boardrooms, like corporate uh, world. Are the co uh, boardrooms adequately uh, prioritizing uh, their response to the regulatory and reputational risk of potential complicity in the ongoing atrocity crimes against this vulnerable ethno-religious group? Some are, but many are still learning. Mm -hmm. And one of my key messages to the community is that forced labor is now a top-tier compliance issue. Mm -hmm. For many years, companies have built compliance programs for, to, for, to handle risks around issues like anti-corruption and the mm -hmm. FCPA, sanctions, right. export controls compliance, privacy. Uh, we, we need to add forced labor compliance to that list, especially with the passage of landmark laws like the Uyghur Forced Labor uh, Prevention Act. Mm -hmm. And so this is an issue for compliance teams, uh, to be sure, but it's also an issue for C-suites. It's yeah. an issue for, uh, for boards. Mm -hmm. And to the, you know, to, apropos of the title of our discussion yep. today, it is, of course, a legal risk and a, re yeah. and, and a compliance risk, a, a business risk. It's also a reputational risk uh, for companies. And I think some companies have found that out. And so this is something that companies absolutely uh, need to hone in on. And one of my priorities since we began implementing this law in the summer of last year is to engage with the corporate community to talk about how serious we are about our expectations as the regulator in this space that they have robust supply chain tracing, supply chain transparency, due diligence programs yeah. to really understand far down their supply chains. Uh, that's the only way uh, that we are going to uh, get at the mission, the goal of these forced labor laws, which is to eradicate the problem at the source. The, um, um, as a compliance lawyer, I, I do understand the, uh, the process uh, in, in the business world a little bit. Uh, one common question comes up is uh, due diligence. Um, you know, what kind of due diligence that we, um, in the compliance programs that we um, force uh, uh, individuals in charge of that process to be uh, vigilant and, and fully responsible for. So in your uh, role as, a, as the chair of the task force, um, uh, what kind of role uh, that um, that uh, due diligence requirements uh, can play uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the nature of mandatory requirement, for example. So, so we, we do have uh, mandatory requirements that we've yeah. articulated for what we expect to see, yeah. particularly uh, uh, for shipments that are coming in that have a nexus to Xinjiang or a company that's known to operate using these uh, uh, oppressive labor right. uh, practices. And we actually uh, developed and issued landmark guidance to industry that the, the Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force did, uh, laying out what are the ingredients of a key due diligence program. And in addition to uh, knowing your vendors, knowing your supply chain, mm -hmm. knowing your consultants, understanding all the way down the supply right. chain, and understanding the labor practices of those who feed components into whatever your business processes are, there's also, fortunately, a host of new technologies that are yeah. helping companies uh, engage in this yeah. compliance and to be able to deepen in yeah. an efficient way 
uh, the way that they're able to penetrate through supply chains that can be murky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we live it. It's a complex uh, international economic e ecosystems. A lot of the times, you have components shipped to one country. They're uh, assembled, shipped back to the same country mm -hmm. where they're further assembled and finished, and uh, and you have many tiers of the supply chain. There are really uh, incredible technology applications that are, in including harnessing artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. other and other data analytics that are really uh, helping with this. And I, it, it 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 is heartening because, you know, there is so much discussion now mm -hmm. of transnational repression. Right. Right of how authoritarian governments are using technology mm -hmm. to repress, to surveil, to undermine human rights. And that's all true. Mm -hmm. Technology can also be a force for human rights. Right, it right. can be a force for transparency exactly. and sunlight and for remediation. Yeah. And uh, uh, that is, we both spoke at the Tech Expo, right, the right. CBP Tech Expo earlier this week, and I think that's the key point there. The, uh, do you um, do you hear um, when you engage with the business communities? Do they ever uh, um, express any concerns that um, it is next to nothing to conduct uh, adequate due diligence in a, in a region or on a people whose basic human rights literally are reduced to acts of genocide today? Like, do they express any difficulties and challenges? You know, when I testified in Congress in 2019. Uh, this was one of the key issues uh, that that hearing and, and subsequent actions paved the way for the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and this was one of the key questions. I I do generally believe that it's difficult. It it, it is difficult, and yeah. we and we hear that, and I think that the the truth is, the vast majority of U.S. companies I think want to have compliance in this yeah. area. I think they are repulsed by the notion that there might be slave labor mm -hmm. uh, in their supply chains. I think they want to do the right thing. I think some of them have, some of them have expressed uh, concern to me and, and others that uh, it's hard. One, there's not a lot of transparency yeah. in the Chinese system. Right, right. So it can be hard even for a company that does want to find out more. It can yeah. just be hard to learn. Right. Uh, and sometimes with certain commodities, it can be hard to really trace back to the raw materials level. Mm -hmm. uh, the industries just over time haven't been necessarily designed to be able to trace where this shipment came from versus that shipment. Right. And materials can be commingled and mixed together, and it adds complexity. Right. What we're doing is we're working really closely with industry on a daily basis mm -hmm. To help them, and we're learning from them, and they're learning from us. Mm -hmm. And through that, uh, we are uh, gaining confidence uh, in our ability to, to be satisfied that some shipments uh, truly uh, have a legitimate provenance and mm -hmm. aren't tainted by forced labor. And when we've been able to establish that with a company, often through weeks or months of right. trading paperwork and bills of materials and it, so, you know, purchase orders. I mean, we really get into it because it's very important to us to get it right. But once we can get it right with a company, often that company sees a lot of efficiency because it, when future shipments come in that have identical supply chains, we understand it, we've learned it with them, and the shipments can come in quite efficiently. Right. There's other instances in which companies haven't been able to satisfy uh, the burden. And in that case, their product is going to have to be destroyed or re-exported. 
the um, um, some businesses suggested that they can conduct due diligence, um, and I also the the, uh, the the readings that I have done, the access to um, to uh, people uh, conduct due diligence is not even close to the, uh, the level of access in, available in Bangladesh when we compare it to the access in China. So I, to me, this comes across um, as some sort of um, um, a, a, a reluctance or an excuse not to follow the law. Um, that's a very separate, uh, this, that's a separate topic. But let's move on uh, uh, to the next question that's very important. This is something that have been in the minds of many people. Uh, the, the law have been implemented almost nine months now. Uh, if you could describe the process at DHS, the implementation process, what kind of challenges, uh, obstacles that you have encountered in your leadership role in the enforcement implementation? Sure. Uh, listen, this was a what we call a greenfield project. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been enforcing forced labor laws for yeah. a long time, but this set new legal standards, uh, new criteria for evaluation, and candidly, a much stricter mm -hmm. uh, a set of criteria than some past labor laws, uh, forced labor laws. And uh, so we had to build an entire architecture right. for the implementation and enforcement, and we had six months to do it. Right, right. The, the law passed at the end of uh, December 2021, yeah. and we, 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 we actually did our work uh, a few days or, uh, before the six-month deadline. So we were on, on time. And, you know, the challenges were a few. One, creation of this new sanctions list, which we call the forced labor entity list, right, right. which had never existed before, right, and right. creating standard operating procedures for the nomination and consideration of new uh, entities for, for designation to that list. Uh, two, uh, setting, gui developing guidance for industry. What does it mean? What are you going to need to show mm -hmm. at the port to get to substantiate the legitimacy of your supply chains? Right. And so we pushed, we developed and socialized with industry and got mm -hmm. feedback. Uh, uh, really granular, granular advice on those sort of trade practices and what kind of documentation uh, needed to be uh, developed. We also put a focus, is very important, on deepening our relationships with civil society. Yeah. When it comes to, for, we have incredible relationships with a number of civil society organizations, human rights activist groups, uh, and it, they're not only partners of ours and s sort of stakeholders, mm -hmm. uh, we literally can't do it without them. Right. We, get, we get leads, we get investigative leads from these incredible organizations that are in the field, often covertly right. and at great danger, uh, collecting information on the ground in China and uh, sharing it with us. And based on that, uh, we review it and we have taken uh, enforcement actions. And so we really put a priority on uh, just as we are engaging with industry to make yeah. sure that they can understand the rules because we do want to facilitate Lethal, lawful trade. Right. I mean, that's very important that lawful trade be able to come in quickly. Uh, our economy depends on it. But we also want to make sure we are really tightly bound up with civil society and to make sure that we're getting all their feedback on what's really going on out there right. that we should be attuned to from an enforcement perspective. Now, 
so in terms of difficulties, whenever you have a new compliance regime, right. there's a lot of uncertainty. There's just a lot of uncertainty. People say, I'm not sure how they're going to interpret this provision or that. Mm -hmm. What exact kind of documentation will they expect to see? Mm -hmm. Will this shipment get in or that shipment? Uh, uh, there's just uncertainty that's very natural, and that and we felt that uh, in the opening months of this process, mm -hmm. uh, to be sure. And what we've done is uh, it's a learning process for everyone because it is brand new. Industry has learned, mm -hmm. we've learned, and what we've done is we've issued new guidance as we are learning to make sure the community is benefiting from yeah. it. So we put out initial guidance when we rolled out in June of last year, but then just a few weeks ago, we rolled out a best practices document based on lessons learned. We rolled out a draft table of contents that shows the kinds of documents in a successful package uh, to substantiate the supply chain of, an, of, a, of a, a, a shipment uh, and more. Yeah. Uh, and we also are, we, have, we need to be transparent with the community. So uh, we, have, we just rolled out earlier this week a new online dashboard mm -hmm. showing, all, showing enforcement metrics by dollar amount, by where the cargo was from, by the commodity or product type, because we need the community to, to know, and, we, and, they, and the community deserves to know. Uh, yeah, I saw the uh, dashboard. It's quite impressive. Thank you. Yes, um, thank you. I um, um, thank you for uh, sharing, the, um, sharing your thoughts and, and, and describing the challenges and obstacles. But I'm, I'm curious to know what is the next step for the uh, task force? What are the things that um, uh, the task force is prioritizing in yeah. order to achieve full implementation of the law? Uh, absolutely. So I, I think we are yeah. at full implementation, but yeah. I think like any enforcement regime, yeah. Yeah. It, it continues and continues. Yeah. And I think one is the entity list. Yeah. We're really strongly committed to building that out and expanding it. Uh, uh, to to include any other entities that we identify that are engaged in these abhorrent yeah. practices, a piece of that, by the way, yeah. is and is the ability to take an an entity off the entity list right. if they've remediated. Right, and we've right. done that before the Uyghur Act uh, with with just our legacy forced labor enforcement authorities. We've designated yeah. a company. And then the company has, you know, that hits the company hard. Right, right. And the company has cleaned up its act, remediated, instituted reforms, yep. proven that to us, and we'll take them off the sanctions list. And that's a huge win. Right. That's, that's making the world a better place uh, and, and, and showing uh, improvement through action. So, so, that's, so the entity list is a, a big piece of it. We continue to realize just efficiencies. Right, you right. know, any anytime you're new, you're going to have growing pains. We think that we're able this over the course of this year to increase processing efficiency a lot without sacrificing at all at the rigor of our enforcement, right. Right. and to get really uh, uh, both speedy and surgical and also strong. Right. Uh, we're able to do all that. I also I mentioned technology. We're interested in some tech pilots. So, for example, can we use DNA testing right, right. to tell whether cotton uh, comes, was grown in Xinjiang province yeah. uh, versus uh, somewhere else? That's really reliable. It's fast. Uh, and it can clear good cargo through and keep uh, tainted cargo out. So we're really interested in technology. Wonderful. Do you have any um, examples um, 
for precedent that uh, the laws in this nature help to eradicate um, uh, forced labor. Uh, you know, often Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan comes to mind. Um, you, do you, would you be willing to uh, speak to that um, if there's any good examples that we can recommend to the businesses in addition to the, them to follow the law? A absolutely. There are there have been examples where after we have issued what's called a withhold release order, which yeah. is our uh, uh, sort of the type of enforcement action that we can take uh, to prohibit cargo from coming in because it uh, is the product of forced labor, uh, we can uh, work to validate that a company has, for example, improved housing conditions or mm -hmm. pay conditions uh, for its workforce, that it has cleaned up its practices with res with respect to uh, recruiting yeah. uh, and transporting uh, workers to make sure that's all uh, humane, consensual, mm -hmm. uh, and and the and and the like. Uh, and there are a number of examples where we have uh, been able to do that, and where conditions have uh, improved uh, uh, rapidly. And right. so, absolutely. The uh, I have I, I have. Uh, and one final question before we open the floor to the participants. The international cooperation. Yeah. Um, as you know, you and I have uh, talked about this. We cannot do this alone. Um, we cannot do this alone because of the magnitude and scope and scale of the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, we're talking about more than 80 global brand. Um, in, in your engagement with our partners and allies, um, do you see um, convergence on this issue? Um, I, I'm eager to see them joining the effort. Uh, this is not ju just a simple uh, geopolitical, economic, or competition issue. This is a moral issue, and Europeans know it better, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, I do see convergence, but it's not converging as quickly as yeah. I would like, yeah. and that is one of my priorities for this year is to work to persuade like-minded countries to pursue similar regimes, enforcement regimes in their own systems. Yeah. Uh, whether that be in Europe, in Japan, Australia, India, yeah. uh, and, and, and more, you, you know, you said it just right, Nori. The goal here is to eradicate forced labor. Yeah. We're never going to be able to do that if there are markets that are open to products yeah. made with forced labor. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is that, fortunately, this is an area where there should be a convergence of interests because the use of forced labor, in addition to being a human rights atrocity and a moral imperative to right. address on its own right, and that's why we do it, but it also undercuts workers. In, it, it undercuts businesses Absolutely. that are playing by the rules right. and are treating their workers well, and that's a we, we should treat workers well. Yeah. And I, I think I'm hopeful that countries in Europe and uh, elsewhere will uh, see that. Yeah. And that's become among the the, the, the many yeah. hats that I wear in my position, yeah. uh, because the Department of Homeland Security is such a, a big uh, place with so many disparate missions. I'm. I, I lead the international affairs function for our uh, department. And so this has really vaulted to the top of our diplomatic priorities yeah, yeah, as yeah. we're engaging across the world. I, I just wanted to thank you um, for the simple message, simple but very powerful message. When I hear, heard this first time, it, it, it just hit me hard, even though somebody who is so immersed in this work, 
that you're absolutely right that forced labor is a cancer in our valleys. I mean, this is not that difficult. It sounds patronizing, condescending, but some countries in Europe still not fully apprehending the type of problem that they are being part of. So um, I wanted to, uh, if, you, if you're okay with that, I'd like to open the floor for questions. If anyone who has questions, um, feel free to ask. Yes, microphone. Hi, I'm Michael. Wait for the microphone. <clears throat> Hi again. Thanks for being here. I'm Michael Martino with Reuters News. Um, I know you're here mostly talking about the, uh, the forced labor aspects of this. I wanted to ask about Hikvision. Um, this is a company, as an American consumer, I can go online, I can go on Amazon right now, and I can buy products from Hikvision, which have been linked to mass surveillance in Xinjiang. Um, from your perspective at DHS, do you, how do you view this? Um, do you support uh, adding Hikvision to, say, the SDN list at Treasury? And have you had any conversations with uh, counterparts at Treasury about how to do that and, and if that should be done? So I strongly support, and the Biden administration strongly supports, taking actions to punish companies that are complicit in human rights abuses. And uh, I'm, not gonna I'm not gonna comment on particular pending actions and particular uh, companies in this, in this setting, but we've actually uh, issued sanctions or put on the Commerce Department's entity list uh, and otherwise taken actions uh, against companies that have, uh, uh, through their businesses, uh, eroded human rights or been complicit with governments to do that. We've done that in the context of spyware. We've done that in the context of companies that enable chi the Chinese surveillance state or the crimes against humanity that are ongoing in Xinjiang province. And uh, we will continue to do so. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you very much for the presentation. It was very enlightening. David Jun from White and Case down the road. Um, I have a question. Does the Chinese government, are they um, reacting to this new legislation of implementation, or are they just ignoring it, hoping it would not succeed? That's my question. So I've read public statements from the PRC government complaining uh, about the legislation, yeah. Yeah, they seem on. You know, they they seem not to support the they seem not to support the legislation. I think I can comment. Um, this has been part of China's political economy. They invested in the ongoing genocide, um, so much resources, so much money. We're talking about a massive camp system that the world has not seen since the Holocaust era. We're talking about the most sophisticated surveillance uh, system that they set up. New Yorker magazine has a piece uh, describing Chen Zhengguo, who was sanctioned by the US government under the Global Magnitsky Act, operating from an old government hotel with a massive computer screens. So um, yeah, they need to find a way to uh, recoup their investment. In, uh, in addition to that, uh, as some people in media often say, China elevated uh, millions of people out of poverty. That created labor shortage. So they need to solve that problem as well. So 
yeah, of course they they are um, they are unhappy, and and, uh, and and it's not our business if they're happy or not. We need to keep doing the right thing. At, at a certain point, you know, you do need in whatever your line of work. Yeah. You know, you need to step back for a minute and say, "What, what do I? What do we stand for? Right, what right. do I stand for?" Right, right. And th this, to me, is one of our mission spaces where I know what we stand for, and it's the right. It's the right thing. It's standing Absolutely. for human rights and individual rights, and the rights <clears throat> not to be persecuted because of the color of your skin or your religion or your ethnicity, and to enjoy liberty yeah. and life and we have just seen uh, we've seen darkness in Xinjiang province yeah. we continue to see darkness and this is hard work yeah and it, uh, it uh, there are different opinions out there yeah. about whether we we ought to do it or not we're continuing to do it thank you very much Anyone else? Thank you. My name is Trevor. I just had a quick question. I know that this uh, discussion has been really um, regulatory focused, but I'm curious, how do you go about changing consumer attitudes towards this issue? You know, it's one thing, I think, a very important thing, obviously, to address how corporations do business globally and how they you know, conduct due diligence their supply chains and assess their supply chains. But how do you go about changing consumers' attitudes on this topic? So I, I think that consumers have shown an interest over time in buying products that are consistent with their values, yeah. you, you know? And, and I think most people would be, I think most Americans don't think about where the T-shirt the that they're wearing comes from in that way. But I, but I, you know, that's not because they're bad people. It's just, you know, it's an awareness right. issue, right? I think most, the vast majority of Americans would be horrified to learn. Uh, that apparel or electronics or tomatoes or what have you that they are uh, uh, enjoying were made by people living in slave conditions. And so I do think consumer awareness is uh, an important uh, piece of this. It's not the piece that the Department of Homeland Security uh, focus on, focuses on ours is really investigations for cargo coming into the country. But I see that kind of question as being a part of a complementary set of efforts that can further the mission work. Because if consumers are aware, that incentivizes businesses yeah. to care and to do more robust due diligence. Uh, and that's helpful to our mission because it means less um, uh, illicit cargo is being sent here, and it's you know that is one step yeah. closer to accomplishing the mission. Another example is there are investors uh, out there that make a point of only investing uh, in companies that have a credible and strong due diligence programs around forced labor. That's the other. That's again not that's not what we do, but that's another sort of complementary 
growing movement in the broader ecosystem in which our societies as a whole can move towards a place where we do not tolerate the presence of forced labor in our supply chains. Just compliment on the Secretary's excellent points. Um, the consumers already spoken up. As you may recall, um, last year, there was a call to not to watch the Winter Olympics. And American people, Canadian people, uh, responded. As a result, the CBC, NBC viewership dropped half, nearly 50%. That, that's a huge response. I was so uh, pleased to see that response. So when the consumers speak out, uh, corporate uh, boardrooms uh, hear and adjust. And the other thing is that, you know, uh, when you look at the, the type of support that this particular bill uh, received um, in the midst of supply chain crisis, uh, inflation, it's quite remarkable. We, what we're talking about here is um, every single senator unanimously supporting over 400 member of Congress. We have 435, close to everyone except for a few people. That, that we, our Congress is representing the American people. So the American people demand that our government takes action on this. So that's a very powerful message to the Chinese government, to the businesses, and our uh, allies and partners around the world. It's rare to have, these days, it seems rare to have bipartisan Absolutely. issues that we can rally around. I really think this is one of them. This is an American issue. Yes, absolutely. Yes, sir. Um, this would be our final question. Yeah, I, I, I'm with the Japanese newspaper, Sanke Shimbun. You, you, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, uh, so-called so like-minded countries such as Japan or Australia sharing your concern on policies on the Chinese government's oppression of the human rights in Xinjiang province, you know. But, but I am sure that there are some areas that their position, Australia or Japanese government, uh, diverge from their policy or even your perception. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's any specific territory or points that you, you might wish that those countries, like-minded countries, would uh, come closer to your position or take similar actions. Sure. Well, one area, and it's not specific to Japan, it's, it, it, it's broad, where I think we can be doing better is information sharing between our enforcement authorities here in the United States and the enforcement authorities, whether it be the, usually the customs agencies uh, or others of partner countries uh, on forced labor. Because if we uh, have detected that shipments from a certain importer are linked to forced labor, we can use that information to detect similar shipments in the future that are coming here. But we think that enforcement authorities in other countries should benefit from that information as well, so that the forced labor products don't just end up being re-exported there, and the market stays viable for that kind of heinous working condition. And so uh, one, one to your question, one thing that uh, we are really focused on is trying to build that information capability uh, and, and uh, connective tissue between U.S. enforcement authorities and enforcement authorities in other countries. Just to add before we close, um, some countries have an existing legal tools. They need to start using it. It's not exactly designed for addressing forced labor practices, but the country
countries like Canada, UK have uh, legal measures that can go after individuals responsible for this kind of uh, worst forms of uh, human rights abuses. So uh, with that, um, I, with those uh, insightful comments, um, I will conclude with my own um, comment by reminding us that economic gain must not come at the cost of all morality and humanity. It's a duty of both the government and private sector to ensure that American people are not unbiddingly funding atrocity crimes with their dollars. I am very, very grateful again. I can't thank you enough for your leadership in this noble work. Um, I, I am very grateful uh, with the leaders like that. I'm, hopefully, uh, I'm hopeful that, that we can be able to eradicate uh, the cancer that you have been eloquently speaking of from our values. Um, I, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time on Friday afternoon uh, to join us, um, and also uh, on a very special day, uh, St. Patrick's Day, for being here. Um, you've been very gracious with your time. Thank you again. Please come back. Uh, we would like to continue this conversation with you. Thank you, Nora. Thank you.